obviously we've been in kind of an interesting season of life, I would say. Um, we've had COVID and we've had uh, just kind of an interesting year, uh, which has been culminated by lots of things. And, um, and so this, obviously this past week was, um, was a different week, a different week for us as a nation, something that we saw that, that we might not uh, have thought we might experience nationally in this way. Um, and one of the things that we can completely acknowledge is that violence of any kind when it comes to things like what happened in Washington, D.C. this past week, or what happened throughout the summer in cities like Seattle and Portland and Minneapolis, um, that those are actions that are, one, to be condemned, but more than that, they're they're a temperature reading of our culture. A culture that puts its confidence and its faith in a moving target. In something that is bound to change. In something that is not eternal but is temporal. We see politicians, whether it's on the right or on the left, incite people. Encourage people. To do things which harm other people that don't respond or react in love. And we see our culture breaking into tribes. Each tribe looks at one another with skepticism. Each one thinks the other one is more deceived than the other. But the truth is that God is the one who opens eyes, and God is the one who unifies, and God is the one who is a source of our hope. And that even in these events, God is still working out His will for His glory. And it's easy to be seeing these events become angry and lose hope. When in fact, God's Word tells us something entirely different. Because our hope and security and our confidence is not tied to the events of this world but is tied to an event that took place over 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so the anchor of our hope, the anchor, is Christ. And so this morning, we're going to be diving back into our series in the book of Acts here. And what I hope is that we would be encouraged. That we would be encouraged to see the gospel at work. What's occurred this past week, what's occurred over the summer, what's occurred in all this unrest is not a finger-pointing aspect where the church looks and points the finger at one another, but it's an opportunity for people to hear the gospel and respond to the hope of the gospel that we have in Jesus. The gospel has always been the unifier. Christ has always been the source of our unity. And what happens is these things happen and they completely discombobulate us. We get frustrated, we get angry, we don't know what to do, we feel twisted, we feel like the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and that's probably the only thing that is actually true that we're seeing, is that apart from Jesus, we have a destiny in hell apart from Him eternally that our only hope comes through Jesus Christ. 
And it's in these times that as the followers of Christ, one, we should be greater motivated towards unity with one another in Jesus, but we should also be greater motivated and mobilized for the gospel. We have opportunities to share the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. We have the answer, and it's Jesus. And we have the answer in the gospel because we live in a fallen and broken world that is marred by the effects of sin and will always be marred by the effects of sin until Jesus comes and redeems it. And so that's where we're diving in today. God's timing is perfect, right? We've had some time off in the book of Acts and we're diving back into Acts 15, verses 36 through 16, excuse me, 36 through, through 16, 10. And we're going to be dealing with the providence of God. And this morning, it's the idea that the, God's providence is not what you think. It's simple. God's providence is not what you think. So let's go ahead and read this passage together this morning. Let's kind of set aside what's going on out there. And let's look at what God has to say about it. And let's look at the anchor of our soul, Jesus, and what He has to say. And let's move away for a moment from the noise of the outside. The noise that is designed not to push us towards Jesus, but to push us away from Jesus. So let's go ahead and look at that together. It says this, Acts 15 Verse 36, and we're going to run through chapter 16, verse 10. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered for themselves, excuse me, they, deli- they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. 
Lord, this morning as we look at your word, may we find encouragement in your providence. May we find encouragement in your power to fulfill your will. God, may we see you as a gracious God who is working out your will on our behalf and on your behalf. Lord God, whatever noise may may overwhelm our hearts this morning, I pray that the sound of your Spirit's voice would be louder. I pray that as your church, we would be a people who bring the hope of the gospel to a world in desperate need of it. And may we see, God, that even these events that we don't understand or that we're frustrated by, that God, that these events are opportunities for your providence to be seen and known. So Lord, may you take your word this morning and implant it deeply on our hearts. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, central to this passage is the idea that perceived hindrances are opportunities for God to display His providence in the fulfillment of His will. Perceived hindrances are opportunities for God to display His providence in the fulfillment of His will. Simply put, hindrances display providence. Hindrances display providence. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. Now, we need to kind of begin by explaining providence. What exactly is meant by it, right? There's these kind of words, I think, that pop up a lot within our our Christian culture. We're not sure what they mean. We hear them go by. How does providence differ from sovereignty and and these, these terms? So let's kind of just kind of put it on the table of what providence is. So, the Zondervan Bible Dictionary defines God's providence this way. And I'll sum it up more simple than this, okay? It defines it as God's activity through His unlimited power and knowledge to fulfill His purpose for the whole creation, including man. God's providence is God's activity through His unlimited power and knowledge to fulfill His purpose for the whole creation, including man. Basically what it is, is it's God bringing about the fulfillment of His will for His creation and for us personally. It's God bringing about the fulfillment of His will for creation and for us personally. That's what it means. It's the idea of Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to His image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So God is the one that is doing the work. He's the one bringing it about. He's bringing about His will. He's bringing about His purposes. And it's for His good, for our good, And so, like the the break that we've had from our series in Acts during the Advent season, there was a break that had some time that passed between Paul and Barnabas and their time with the Jerusalem Council. If you recall, we left off in 
the earlier portion of Acts 15, and Paul and Barnabas had gone to the council because there were those Jewish believers who were saying that faith wasn't enough for salvation, but rather they needed to follow the Jewish rituals and laws. And so Paul and Barnabas come to the council to consider this kind of matter of faith and practice for the purpose of building up and maintaining the unity within the church. Now we're told at the beginning of this portion of Scripture that after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now that seems pretty benign. It seems like a, a, a pretty great request. Paul's heart to go back to the churches that they've already visited. You see the pastoral heart in Paul to, to not simply plant the church and this leave it on its own. His desire is the church would actually begin to, to grow and they want to go back and they want to encourage these churches. And so he says to Barnabas, let's go do this. And it, and it seems to be a, a, something that Barnabas is in agreement with. But what follows this request really becomes one of the, the more well-known events in Scripture. And, and I think it's a portion of Scripture that we have to be really careful about. We can overread this passage and we can kind of come up with lots of different ideas about it, but we need to be careful that we don't read into it what's not there. And so it says here that Paul and Barnabas have this discussion. And this discussion leads to a sharp disagreement. In, in fact, it sets in motion a series of perceived hindrances which actually look as if they're going to prevent the furtherance of the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And yet, God uses those hindrances to demonstrate His providence in fulfilling His will. He really is working out the bad for the good. He's taking what is seen and perceived as being bad, and He's using it for His good. So what we actually see in this text then are some encouraging observations about God's providence when faith with hindrances while, pers by, by, while pursuing His will. So we're, we're going to look at these observations as encouragement and encouragement that we can find when we face hindrances knowing that God is actually working out His will. So the first hindrance that we actually see is the loss of spiritual partnership and or leadership. Hindrance number one that's demonstrated is the loss of spiritual partnership and or leadership. Now this doesn't sound like a good thing. We're told here that now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with him to work. Now notice right there the strength of disagreement. Paul thought best. Barnabas wanted to do something Paul thought best. Right there, you got, you got two heads hitting pretty hard. Now what you're going to see in this passage is something that was different than what was just resolved in the council. In the Jerusalem council, they were dealing with a theological issue. And there are going to be times when those who are in partnership in ministry or those who are in leadership together 
struggle because one is struggling with sin or there's a, a, a doctrinal heresy that's taking place. But in this situation, it's a matter of personal preference. Interesting that this matter of personal preference becomes a divide. The phrase here, sharp disagreement, is the word paroxymos in Greek. And it, it carries with it the idea of being provoked and incited. It's the same exact word that's used in the love passages in 1 Corinthians 13, which it says that love does not provoke. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not provoke. Same exact word. Importance here is what they're saying here is that Paul and Barnabas actually are moving towards their own preferences and most likely not really operating in love with one another. You can see it, right? Barnabas, who has a heart to minister to those that are in need. Barnabas comes. He's the one that disciples up along with others, Paul. He takes Paul away from the persecution that he's experiencing from the early church, takes him away, works with him, disciples him, raises him up. Paul comes out of that. Paul and Barnabas are sent out to the churches, to the Gentile churches, as they begin to proclaim the gospel. These guys know each other. They respect one another. They love one another. And now they're in this sharp disagreement. The sharp disagreement is really dealing with areas of some hurt and some pain. Mark is Barnabas' cousin. And yet Paul feels very betrayed by Mark, right? I think it best not to be the guy that left us. What happens in that time with Paul? Well, Mark left right after they had experienced persecution in Cyprus. And it's not but just a a little while later that Paul is actually stoned. Paul seems to have a reason. Barnabas has got another one. Barnabas' reason probably is, hey, listen, we all have failings. You had failings. That's where God's grace comes in. Raise him up. Bring him with you. Let's bring him going. And Paul's saying, wait a second here. We're going into a place where we're going to be persecuted and that's who you want to go with me as my assistant? Not a chance. He's already shown his true colors. Both men have their reasons. But both men are moving to a place where they have provoked one another. They're not walking in love with one another. And I think there's two reasons that God shows us this. The first is to let us know that at times, within the body of Christ, specifically within the leadership of His church, there may be those who come to a place of disagreement where it's not doctrinal and it's not a matter of sin. And when that happens, that the body of Christ is not to align itself with one or the other. Notice that there is no rebuke in this text of either of those two men, and there's no rebuke of them in Scripture. 
And I think it's precisely so that we don't take sides. Because God's providence is still at work. God's using this disagreement to actually further his ministry. The second reason that I think that it's mentioned is that it's a reminder that Paul and Barnabas are not sinless. That these are not perfect men. They are not gods. It would be very easy to look at both of these men who are beginning to go out and grow and develop the church and to go, these guys are it. And hitch your wagon to each of those men. And God's saying, listen, don't hitch your wagon to these men. These men are my vessels. And they're still imperfect. And I'm the one who grows my church. So then what's the encouragement in this? Where do we find the encouragement? Well, the encouragement we see in verse 39 through 41, where it says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Well, ironically, what happens here is Barnabas does take Mark, and they go to Cyprus, one of the cities that they had already visited. Silas and the others go, Silas and Paul go to the other cities. But what we see here is that God realigns people for the next phase of growth and ministry. God realigns people for the next phase of growth and ministry. Now, in this particular case, God used a disagreement. Sometimes he just uses it by calling others into other areas of ministry, different ways. We feel distinctly called to move on to the next thing, and we go, what are we going to do? Isn't that a hindrance to the ministry? Isn't that a hindrance to your vision, Lord? And God's going, no, I'm just relying on my people for the next phase of growth and ministry. Notice what happens. Mark, who would have gone with Paul, and they would have gone into these areas, and most likely, Mark would have just been hanging on like claws, I don't want to leave, 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 I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. And his entire time is a battle between the flesh to stay or go. But what happens? Barnabas takes him to Cyprus. And we know that in Timothy, Paul calls for Mark to come, even in his last days, to be an encouragement. He begins using Mark as a servant, and we see reconciliation that has taken place, but not just reconciliation between Paul and Mark, but we see that Mark is reconciled to the service, to the ministry of Christ. Secondly, what we see in that is we see that God actually provides the people for the next phase here of the work that Paul's going to be doing. He commends Silas, the Antioch church commends Silas and Paul to go out. And so it is important that no man becomes idolized as a God. Because Christ is the one who grows and strengthens his church. Warren Wiersbe puts it this way, he said, God changes his workmen, but his work goes right on. Now there were two missionary teams instead of one. If God had to depend on perfect people to accomplish His work, He would never ever get anything done. 
our limitations and imperfections are good reasons for us to depend on the grace of God, for our sufficiency is from Him alone. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4-6 through affirms this when it says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's hopeful. That means that when God changes leadership in a church, that it's part of His realignment when it's not based upon sin. So He's, he's actually saying, listen, I'm realigning my workers for the furtherance and growth of my ministry. But I'm also realigning it for our own growth. That ought to give us hope. That ought to help us see that even in the things that we think are hindrances, God's still working to put the pieces in place for His glory to be seen and known. Now notice, God doesn't just leave Paul with Silas in this moment. He's lost Barnabas and Mark. He's given him Silas. But then we see in verses 1-2 through that it says Paul also came to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So, we have two ministry teams now. Barnabas and Mark, and they go to Cyprus. We don't know much about what Barnabas did anymore, but we do know that Mark is trained up, raised up, and reconciled. We know a lot about what Paul does. Paul and Silas go out, and another individual is provided to that ministry team. But there's a problem. Hindrance number two his personal background. His personal background. We may see our personal background as a, as a hindrance to the work of Christ. But when God is calling, when God is leading, God uses that hindrance to demonstrate His providence again. Notice what it says here in verse 3. It says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, it's very possible that Timothy, who was in Lystra, was actually one of those disciples who gathered around Paul after he had been stoned. We're told in, in Acts 14, that Paul and Barnabas, after this stoning, strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Timothy may have been one of those, and it's believed that he was one of those that was around Paul. Paul not only knew what the believers said, but most likely had experienced Timothy's willingness to stand in the face of persecution. But either way, Timothy would have heard that teaching and been exhorted up that it was through trials and tribulations 
that the ministry of the word of God would go forth. And Timothy was moving forward in that with passion. Look at the difference there for a moment. Mark, a brother and a friend who needs to be reconciled and raised up and strengthened. And now Timothy, a young follower of Christ who has demonstrated his, his willingness to experience that persecution and his obedience, even knowing that the cost might be stoning. See the difference? God's realigned his people. But now there's this weird hindrance. Timothy's mother is a Jew. The lineage line of, for, for even today to define someone as Jewish is through the mother. But his father was Greek. And in those times, it meant that because his father was Greek, he would not have been circumcised. In order to go into the synagogues, to, to follow Paul in, to be in and present in the, and participate in the work of the synagogues, a person, specifically a Jew, would have had to have been circumcised. And the fact that he wasn't would have led people to believe that he was an apostate Jew, one that was not a soul follower, one that was not in good standing with God. And so what does Timothy do here, or what does Paul decide to do to Timothy? He decides to circumcise him. I, I would venture to say that the level of commitment that takes in those days would have showed an amount of fortitude and determination in Christ that one can only imagine. And Timothy goes through with it. He goes through with it because he believes that God grows his church through faithfulness and sacrificial love. You see, God strengthens and grows his church through faithful and sacrificial love. Your background is not a barrier. If you're walking in faithfulness and sacrificial love with one another, it can look like a hindrance, but it's not. Your faithfulness and sacrificial love towards Christ and towards others actually displays something far more radical. It breaks down walls where walls would naturally rise up. And it speaks to the determination and the commitment that one would go to for a loving and glorifying God. When we turn our back on sin that has mastered our life, what we have declared to others is it is not worth it, and God is. And it is a testimony to the world that desperately needs to see that there is hope in something else than this life. Notice verse 4 and 5. It says, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Why? I believe in part it's because of Timothy's. 
Timothy going into these areas and this man who has just now been circumcised on their behalf. What an amazing testimony. Well, there must be something about that if he went through that for us. I don't know that many of us would go through that for our brother or for our sister. But when we understand the depth of the gospel, we'll do things that don't necessarily seem like wonderful, great, and enjoyable things. Comfort takes a back seat when we're willing to walk in sacrificial love with one another. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21 says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we have, ask, or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is through sacrificial love, through the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, and it is through sacrificial love of His love at work through us towards others that people see who Jesus is. And Jesus has called us to repent and believe on Him. He has granted us a gift that is not based upon law or works. It is based upon faith in Jesus for the person that repents of their sin and turns towards Christ in faith. It's the hope that we have. Isn't God good? Isn't it great to know that when we see things where God is shifting leadership, that He's simply realigning His people for ministry and for growth? Isn't it great to know that our backgrounds are not barriers, but it is through faithfulness and sacrificial love that He uses us to build His church and His kingdom? And then we see the third hindrance. This third hindrance we see in verses 6-8, through eight, and it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. These were closed doors. They seem like closed doors. Now I'll tell you, for most of us, closed doors are frustrating, aren't they? We want something, we're going towards it, and the door closes. It could be about anything, really. If we're seeking our own will, we can go, gosh, these closed doors are rough. But if we understand that closed doors are actually opportunities for God's providence, we can be reminded that God is even working through those closed doors for something else, for His good. So notice, they had gone into the area, this thing that they had deemed so good, but God, you don't understand. I really want to proclaim the gospel in this area. And the Holy Spirit's preventing them. But God, that's your, that's your mission for me. This is where I want to go. And God's going, uh, yep, nope. 
And then they go, well, not there. Let's go to Bithynia. And so they go to Bithynia and they get the same thing. The Spirit of Jesus is holding them back. And you can imagine, this seems like all the right things. It seems like we're supposed to be the ones proclaiming the gospel here. And something happens. We're told in verses 9 through 10, it says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. These closed doors were actually the fact that God gives clear direction and vision for the next ministry opportunity. You see, as they waited with patience, the encouragement in that is that God gives clear direction and vision for next ministry opportunity. When we see closed doors, they ought to be a place of rejoicing. A place to be able to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to wait. Are you going to reopen that door? Or are you going to lead me to another door? And the blessing that comes in God's providence is that when God closes doors, He's actually directing us clearly. He's saying, nope, not to go through that one. Because if you do, you're running over me. I've put the door there so that I might be able to give you clear direction. My hope this morning is that as we look at this passage together, that what we see is that there are hindrances that are perceived. The loss of partnership or leadership spiritually our personal backgrounds, or even closed doors where we think the Lord is leading and yet He shuts them. But each of those are opportunities for God to display His providential promises. That we can trust that when there is this loss, that He's realigning His people for growth and for ministry. We can know that our effectiveness in ministry is not based upon our background, but it's actually based in our faithfulness and sacrificial love towards Christ and others. And that when God closes doors, He's just giving us clear direction and vision for the next opportunity that He's calling us to. So while we initially look like we're being hindered in the work of Christ, God's actually using it to strengthen His purposes. And although Barnabas and Paul's conflict looked like a hindrance to the ministry of Christ, God's providence was moving forward in bringing the right people for the fulfillment of His mission. God's church is strengthened when we understand that His providence is at work even when we don't understand it or see it clearly in the moment. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the power of Your Word this morning. Thank you that you call us to be your children and that we can confidently know that you are working out your purposes for your will for creation and for us. Thank you that you're doing it even when we don't see it. And may we rest in you, may we have confidence in you, and may we have joy knowing that you're bringing to bear your will. And we ask this in your name. Amen.